This is WCPO FM 1051 on your FM dial, Cincinnati, Ohio. WKRC, Cincinnati. This is the nation station. Hi again, everyone, and welcome to the Cincy Shirts Podcast. It's episode 182. Today on our show, author Rick Pender. At GUC, I edited a magazine for them. It was a program guide for the station. This was, you know, back before websites or anything like that. Um, but we published lots of articles about all the arts here in town. Rick has worn quite a few hats over the years, coming to town as a broadcast executive of sorts, moving into PR, journalism, and now books. He talks to us about radio, live theater, his books, 100 Things to Do in Cincinnati Before You Die, Oldest Cincinnati, and the Stephen Sondheim Encyclopedia. Now, if you've been liking the podcast, you can help support it via PayPal or Venmo. Simply use podcast at cincyshirts.com. Chip in whatever you feel is fair. Also, be sure to listen for that special promo code for 20% off near the end of the episode. Now, let's talk to Rick Pender. Cincinnati, Ohio. Cincinnati, Ohio. I come from the C-I-N-C-I-N-N-A-T-I-Cincinnati She came down from Cincinnati Just maybe think of me once in a while I'm at CincyShirts.com in Cincinnati Well, what's funny is that I've just thinking about it, I've known you for over 20 years, and yet I really don't know that much about you. Just the bits and pieces from talking to you over the years at City Beat. And yeah. you know, things, and just reading about you about town and other ventures you've done. I don't even. Are you from Cincinnati? I am not. I grew up in a little town called Chardon, Ohio. I think which I is did. okay. East east of Cleveland. It is right down the road from my hometown, Mentor. Oh, really? Huh. Been, been, wow. Been through Chardon many a time. In fact, uh, my mom tells a, a fun story. She was got her master's degree from Kent State, and one night she was she had to actually go down to Kent State, and she was taking classes, and she was coming home like on a Tuesday, Wednesday night. Blizzard hits. Uh, uh-huh. Comes up, comes up three oh six. She leaves Kent and gets behind this car, and she's like, "I hope this car goes all the way to Mentor." And she's following it and falling. Can't see anything else but the two taillights of the car goes through uh, Chardon, um, and she's the car signals, and she's like, "Oh my God, please don't turn, please don't turn," and it's just it turns off the signal. Keeps going straight. It does go all the way to Mentor, and he finally gets on Route 2 uh, right by our house, and then my mom knows the rest of the way home, and she's able to get home that night. So uh, I was growing up in Chardon. We used to call it the buckle on the snow belt. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You guys would get killed. Uh, sometimes in Mentor, we would get a lot. Sometimes we would, even though it was lake effect snow, it would still skip us a little bit. But yeah, then a couple miles south of us, uh, all, y'all would get buried. Chardon's at a fairly high elevation, so yeah, it yeah. gets a lot of snow. So that's that's where I grew up. My family moved there when I was five, and uh, uh, my parents were in the same house for 50 years. My mom is still living in that area. She's in a an assisted living uh, facility that's in Concord Township, which is yeah. just north of Chardon, yep. and, uh, and she's 100 years old now. Oh, my gosh. That's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, great. So, growing up in Cleveland, where did you move from? I guess did you have any attachment to where you grew? Did you were not really? My my parents were both from Akron. Oh, okay. And, uh, so my my dad uh, was a rep for a sale a, a truck parts company, and he 
his his territory was sort of much of northeast Ohio, and uh-huh. uh, Chardon was a little more centrally located for him. And we also they bought a house near a lake that is just a little bit south of Chardon called Bass Lake. And he he loved being near the water where he could fish and have a sailboat and things like that. So I grew up in this idyllic little community on the on the edge of a lake uh, in Munson Township, Ohio, just outside of Chardon. Yeah, it's a, it's a nice area. Um, it's yeah. my, uh, my wife grew up in Aurora, and weirdly, uh, I almost ended up there uh, even before I was born, my dad, they were living in Bedford and they were going to move because um, they didn't like Bedford anymore and they were only renting a house. And so the choice came down to Mentor or Aurora and they just built the freeway to Mentor. And my dad said, I'd have to take a train from Aurora to get to downtown Cleveland to work. And that settled it. So we, that's how we wound up in Mentor. But it's just funny how things it happen in your life that way that just are serendipitous. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, have an, I have a sort of a connection to Aurora, too. I worked at Hiram College for several years, which is just a top skip and a jump from Aurora. Yeah. And uh, I will tell you that there is still no major highway in that part of that part of Ohio. There isn't. Aurora. We go through Aurora and yeah. on into into the you know southeast suburbs of Cleveland. But uh, it was still pretty far out in the country. When my wife and I had moved back to Cleveland, uh, we were we were friends for a long time. We started dating, but I to go to her house, I still had to go down 306. And to this day, you still have to go down 306. I mean, you can go out 271 and 480, but the the, the yeah. most direct route is is good old 306, uh, right through Chardon. <laughs> so, growing up, what kind of stuff were you interested in? Uh, Cleveland sports fan? Were you more drawn toward the arts and journalism? What was what was that um, like? I was I was uh, I did a lot of theater in high school. Not a big surprise, I guess, given some of what I ended up doing. But I uh, I, I was a sports fan. I actually, uh, among other things, was the announcer for the Chardon High School uh, football team when they had home games. I did you know the PA announcement stuff for that. Uh, it was uh, uh, but and I did a lot. Of, as I say, I did a lot of theater and that sort of thing. But I, I so I was a fan fan of Cleveland sports. Uh, the uh, Cleveland press used to give uh, baseball tickets to Indians games uh, if you got straight A's, and I ah. did. So I got a lot of uh, tickets to games and went and rattled around in the old uh, Cleveland Stadium, uh, you know, which was big enough for 80,000, and they were lucky to get six or 7,000 <laughs> for Indians games back in the 60s. I remember those so, days. Yeah. So I graduated from Chardon High in 67 and uh, so that uh, you know I, I was I was thinking at that point in my career that I was going to be a high school English teacher and I did my undergraduate degree at Oberlin uh, and uh, got my teaching certification and student taught and decided that I really didn't like high school teaching very much huh. so I went and got a MA and a PhD in English literature, thinking I would be a, a college professor. Uh, that, those were from Case Western Reserve. Ooh. And then uh, uh, ended up uh, working at Hiram College for a couple of years 
using, I was doing a little bit of teaching, but my ex-wife and I were residence hall directors there. And then because I was a, a capable writer, I started doing things for their communications office. So I did, I uh, handled sports information. I advised the student yearbook. I, uh, you know, sort of, it was a small school. So if you had a job there, you probably end up, ended up wearing multiple hats. So I did that for a couple of years. And then I was at uh, uh, Walsh College in Canton for a couple of years. And then I came to Cincinnati. And what brought you here specifically? I came here to be the they called it promotion director. It was basically PR for WGUC, the classical music radio station. Ah, okay. And how'd you land that gig? Did you apply for it? Or did they say, did they find you? How did that come together? Story. I, I had been working at Walsh for a couple of years and knew that I wanted to move on to maybe somewhat bigger things. I was interviewing for like a job maybe at a large, like at a state university in, in uh, communications, marketing, development, something like that. But I was looking at in the Cleveland Plain Dealer for at, you know, ads for jobs. And I saw this job for a, a public radio station in Cincinnati. And I had, at that point, this was like 1979, I had been started listening to the public radio station at Kent State and really enjoyed all the NPR programming. And I thought, well, that would be a cool place to work. Um, having gone to school at Oberlin, which has a big music conservatory, I'd learned a lot about classical music, although I'm not a musician, but but I loved the music and you know knew a lot about that. So I came, came down to Cincinnati for the interview and uh, met the people who were getting WGUC really up and running. It had been around for about 20 years, but it had been more like a little university station. And they were suddenly on the cusp of the expansion of NPR with um, uh, with a, a satellite distribution of programming. And so I really landed there at the right time. Not only did I get involved in promoting locally the what the station aired, but we also created uh, orchestral programming for other uh, NPR classical music stations that we could uplink to them. Uh, and we were uh, we had a close relationship with quite a few of the uh, European radio broadcasters. We put together their recordings of concerts with one of our English-speaking announcers and distributed them. And I did all the marketing uh, to other public radio stations and provided them with marketing materials for their local audiences and that sort of thing. So it was a great place to work. And it, it, that really introduced me to the arts community here in Cincinnati. Did you have a notion to do any broadcasting yourself, you know, brush off, brush up that voice that you used to do the PA announcing with and, uh, <laughs> Um, I didn't really think about that much at uh, at WGUC, but after four years there, I ended up uh, as the first general manager at WNKU at Northern Kentucky University. Oh wow! And and, and there, uh, I mean, I when I was hired, they they had a piece of paper, they had a license and uh, two classrooms that they thought they could make into studios. And so I was hired, I got to hire the staff, I got to figure out how to build the equipment. Not that I knew diddly about about the mechanics of broadcasting, but you know, I had friends at WGUC who could 
help advise me. And, you know, we hired, we hired the right kind of people and uh, put together the station, which then signed on in uh, uh, 1985. And uh, I, I like to brag that I hired Marianne Zalesnik uh, to be our news director at WNKU. And of course, she was there for a long time. And now she's the the news director at uh, at WVXU, so uh, that's that's my uh, my legacy, I guess <laughs> I would say. But I did uh, because we had a tiny staff. I did do some on air work when I was there. I was with two other fellows. We did a program cleverly called the Weekend Show, and it was uh, it was uh, about three hours of music that was rooted on the birth dates of famous people, be they composers or pop artists or uh, literary figures or whatever. It was a real potpourri of stuff, and it aired on uh, Saturday afternoons for a couple of hours and then again on Sunday evenings. So, so that was my, uh, that was my, my real, my career in broadcasting. I will say though, that what that did lead to was being there. Marianne, uh, needed things to fill the morning programming with, uh, you know, local stuff. And I said, well, I go see a lot of theater. I could come on and talk about the shows I saw the night before. And, uh, that's how I started reviewing for, uh, for listeners at WNKU. Aha. Uh-huh. So wait, when you so when you start WNKU as as the GM, did the university have any idea what they wanted to do with her? Did you? Because I know a lot. You know, I mean, the college station I worked at in Bowling Green, we ran NPR News, but that was it. We were a rock and roll station from there. Yeah. And I know KSU up in Kent State is a little different, and everyone kind of does it differently. Did you have any idea what direction you wanted to go in? Yes, uh, our our goal was not to duplicate services that were already available here from from WGUC and WVXU, which was at Xavier University at the time, but to try to find uh, you know a, a, a sort of a path maybe between some of those. And what what I found was uh, uh, that there were stations that had these uh, uh, they they called it triple A. It was uh, yeah. alternative adult and, album uh, adult alternative. You know, it was folk, it was folk music, uh, singer songwriter kind of stuff, and that's where we got started with that. Now, initially, what we did was a lot more kind of folky and bluegrass. Over time, uh, it evolved, you know, into a more progressive format. But that's how we started. And the people at the university did not really. Excuse me, just one second sure. here. That was my timer to remind me to get in touch with you at <laughs> three o'clock. Um, uh, they they wanted a radio station that would familiarize people somewhat with the university. And so in terms of what we did programmatically, I mean, they wanted news that, you know, covered things in northern Kentucky. Initially, uh, we didn't have much of a news staff beyond. Marianne was there and, and we had one reporter. Uh, but the folks at the then Kentucky Post would uh, every morning ship over to us a printout of their front page, and we could use that for some of our local news. So we had a good relationship and covered lots of stuff in northern Kentucky. Now, the university wanted us to air basketball games, and we said that's really not what public radio stations are all about. And uh, so we eventually convinced them that uh, you know we should be more in the vein of uh, – public service programming, documentaries, uh, that, and that kind of thing. So I was there for about 
two and a half years uh, in that capacity before I left. And then they went on and hired, hired other people and the programming continued to evolve uh, you know, with some people who were really well informed about uh, the, some of that kind of music. And I, I'm sorry that it doesn't exist anymore. I listened to it a lot after I uh, didn't work there. It was really a great resource for uh, sort of new and original music. It is a shame because it was, like you were saying, there were other services in the air, but it always seemed to fit in very well, not just with those, but with it was kind of a nice compliment to 97X, which was a commercial station, obviously, but also a nice right. compliment to GUC, a nice compliment to VXU, and and it's a shame they, uh, they got rid of that signal. Um, and yeah. at the time, it was, NKU was very tiny, uh, and it's not what, at all what, what it's like today. No, it was a pretty small school. I, I would say that the, really the... Uh, a man who was the chair of the communications department, uh, really, he had been a president of a university previously, and uh, sort of came here as his last job before retiring. And uh, he he knew what the radio station could do and help the university become better known. And uh, he was really the visionary who who pulled it all off. I mean, he hired me and told me what he hoped could be accomplished. And he was very much trying to influence the university to take take this path. I believe that one of the universities where he'd been president had had a, an NPR affiliate station that had really done a lot to connect it to the community. So anyway, yeah, it was, uh, uh, it was a great place to work. I really enjoyed it. I wasn't making very much money at that point, though, and uh, really decided that I wanted to get more squarely into corporate public relations. So I, I moved on to a job at uh, with Choice Care. It was a big health maintenance organization here, and I did corporate communications for them for half a dozen years or so. Um, I was going to ask you how different that was from NKU, but just circling back to NKU for a second because as a sports fan and and what you were saying about them wanting to broadcast basketball games it's somewhat ironic that I think basketball is kind of the one thing that's gotten them attention my daughter went to NKU uh, uh-huh. public relations major there you go how about that and there you uh, go. yeah and um I was telling her, you know, because let's let's be honest. Over the years, NKU for some weird reason has not had the greatest reputation. Probably in the shadow of you know universities like Xavier and UC that have been around forever. But yeah. um, and I told her, I said, well, you know, I know it's weird. And you don't care about sports, but the fact that they now occasionally are get into the tournament, are eligible for the tournament around the country, in people's minds will be like, oh, that's a you know that's a serious school. And I, I, do, you, do you agree with that assessment as a as a sports fan and former employer? Or am I just nuts? Well, I, I do think so. I think that it, it really is, you know, very much uh, an important uh, educational player in the community. Uh, it has a lot of programs. I mean, yes, you're, you're absolutely right. I think sports has been something that has uh, really helped them to become, you know, people be to become more aware of that university, but the breadth and depth of their educational programs, uh, I think, has made a big difference, particularly in Northern Kentucky, but even even more broadly. I mean, they have, you know, I mean, they've got a fine law school there. Yes. Uh, you know, there's all sorts of programs there that that really do training that are, you know, that is important to the entire region. So I, I think that they've, they've grown immensely. I mean, since the time that, that I worked there, which was in the, uh, uh, sort of late eighties, uh, you know, it has really, uh, really grown and, and 
uh, all, the, all the more impressive. I did, by the way, probably before your daughter was there, I was an adjunct instructor of public relations for, oh. for se- several years. Okay, yeah, she graduated and just graduated in twenty winter of 2019. She got yeah. out just before the pandemic. She finished up a semester early. Uh, oh. and well, I, I was teaching there in the sort of mid, mid to late 90s. Okay. So. Um, that's probably after my friend went there. Too. A lot of friends went there, actually. Uh, one of our owners, Josh Sneed, went there, did not graduate because uh, his comedy career took off. But, um, yeah, so we have yeah. lots of folks we know from NQ. So you go to Choice Care. How different is that from working in you know, public radio and, uh, and for a un- at a university? Uh, what is, was there a kind of a culture shock or did you kind of know what you were getting into? I don't know. I don't think I could say I knew what I was getting into, but I knew that I was a capable communicator and I knew that they needed somebody to help with their communications, both with physicians. And I did a lot of like newsletters to doctor's offices and things like that, but also with people who were, um, you know, customers, clients uh, who had coverage from them. And so, uh, and I also handled media relations for them, which, you know, was sort of the other side of a lot of what I had done when I worked uh, at the radio station. So there was some, some uh, transfer, I guess, but at at uh, the radio stations, I worked with uh, staffs of never more. Well, at, at GUC, we had about 20 people on our staff at the radio at WNKU. I think there were eight or nine of us. And I, when I went to Choice Care, I mean, we had a couple hundred employees. I mean, it was much more. It was a corporate environment. You know, I worked within a, a larger marketing department that had a big sales function. And so it was very different, but, but it was a learning experience and I enjoyed it. But I will also tell you that that theater reviewing that I started doing when I was at NKU uh, continued. I picked up writing opportunities from uh, a couple of other uh, there was a, a local publication that came out about twice weekly called The Entertainer. Maybe you remember that one. Uh, and, vaguely. Uh, I got I, here in 94. So. I wrote them, and then, and then I, uh, in the late 80s and early 90s, wrote for Everybody's News. Oh, uh, yeah. I didn't, did I know that or not? I don't know. For Don no. and them? That's how I got to know John Fox. And then when uh. he started City Beat, uh, by that time I had left choice care and gone to work at a big PR firm uh, called Dan Pinger Public Relations. But I was still, you know, writing freelance theater stuff. Yeah. And John approached me, uh, first of all, in 94, when the paper started to be the uh, theater critic for them, you know, just freelance. But then in 98, he approached me and asked me um, if I would become the arts, arts and entertainment editor. So I made that transition. I, I worked at the PR firm for seven or eight years and then uh, went over to uh, uh, over to the journalism side again, I guess. And, uh, and you know, that's, I think, when you and I became acquainted. Yeah. And, uh, well, you, you must have written for everybody's news at the same time because yeah. uh, I was there and I, yeah, and, and uh, Foxy's been on the show and uh, Breen's been on the show. So we've uh-huh. all kind of uh, reminisced about what kind of a, a, a crazy operation that was. I had, I, yeah, I was kind of oblivious back then because I would just come in and this is back before people had their own computers even. So you would have to go down to the offices and use the computer to do your stories. And uh, But I was still oblivious to what was going on and to find out all the, the background stuff of that uh, was was just crazy. And so um, 
you were at Pinger when you when when Foxy offered you the the full time gig as arts and entertainment editor, and did you ever make a decision at that point? I was, <laughs> and uh, I was uh, also in the process of uh, remarrying. And uh, when I decided to take the job at the paper, my wife accused me of uh, bait and switch. <laughs> uh, because we, she had worked for one of my clients at the agency. She was with Downtown Cincinnati Incorporated. And she said, you know, here I thought I was marrying this guy who was this, you know, big, you know, media public relations executive. And now he's going to work for this little rinky-dink newspaper. But, but we are we are still we are still married, however. So sorry, my phone won't give up here. Just a minute. There we go. That's sorry. Fine. So. So we've we've been married for 23 years now, so it uh, didn't have any lasting effect. Well, well, that's good because I assume there was a, a corresponding cut in pay uh, to go work for CityBeat. You know, I will tell you this, and I don't think John would mind me saying it now. He said to me, um, "Well, I know that you know I can't pay you what you were making at the agency, but he said uh, I'll pay you what I pay myself." <laughs> and I said. Well, that doesn't give me much room to negotiate then, does it? Ah. And he said, yeah, but, you know, I, I think part of part of his willingness to say that was that the I went to him. I had working at Pinger. I when I left, I had a no compete. So I couldn't go to work for another PR firm, uh, you know, or, or in any similar capacity. And I thought I would work at the paper for a year or two, then I would be beyond my no compete. And I had serious thoughts about starting my own PR firm. But it was such a blast working at City Beat that uh, I, I was there for eight years. And uh, it was only when my my ever so sensible wife said, do you think you will ever retire? Because we're not saving a lot of money, you know? And I said, yeah, you're right. So then I started looking around and found jobs that paid a little better, but I was there for eight years and uh, it was as much uh, enjoyment as any job I've ever had, I think. Oh, for sure. Uh, and did you find yourself kind of branching out into more entertainment interest? Because, you know, coming from theater, but then you also had to oversee, you know, I was writing about TV and Breen was writing about music and uh, and who was, uh, Ramos was uh, writing about films. Uh, did yep. that kind of broaden your horizons? Well, I think my horizons were already pretty broad, but okay. uh, it was fun to be able to <clears throat> oversee all of that kind of stuff. And uh, I felt like I knew enough about it, frankly, from the time uh, from the 10 years or so that I'd worked in in radio. Uh, and, you know, I mean, at, at GUC, I edited a magazine for them that was a program guide for the station. This was, you know, back before websites or anything like that. Um, but we published lots of articles about all the arts here in town. So, uh, you know, I was well acquainted with all of at least all of the major arts organizations, uh, you know, so it 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 it, it fit for me uh, because I, I knew lots of the people working in the arts world. Well, was another reason for maybe considering leaving City Beat uh, besides thinking of your future, of course, financially with the fact that kind of maybe the, the end, even though we we're kind of a few years away from it, then the end was kind of starting to come for for print or at least uh, a reset of print that was not a factor in my my departure i was really a little bit ahead of that and i i say now that it was sort of like the uh 
you know, the lemmings went off the cliff about two years after after I uh, after I left. Um, I will tell you an interesting thing. During my time at City Beat, I got very active with the American Theater Critics Association. And uh, in 2005, 2006, I chaired that organization. And we did a national conference with four other critics organizations. It was theater, classical music, dance, visual art, and jazz. And uh we had we had over 500 people at a conference out in in Los Angeles. It was a great event. Norman Lear uh, was our keynote speaker for this event. Uh, it was a fabulous thing. But I will say, that, and that would have been in, I think it was in 2005 when that conference happened, maybe maybe six. But it was, uh, you know, those people who were all working and employed as you know critics then. I bet that 95% of them are not uh, employed any longer. They might still be freelancing or something like that. But, you know, that uh, the arts arts writers, particularly, uh, you know, their their positions with with print publications and elsewhere, uh, you know, pretty much went by the wayside. And so how did you get into the book writing? (laughs) Well, uh, let me let me give you the last two pieces of real employment that I had, okay. and then I can explain that part to All you. Right. So, I uh, when I left City Beat, I went to Cincinnati Opera, and I was their director of development, and I uh, did fundraising for them, and I was there for six seasons from 2006 to 2011, and uh, then as a result of the you know some of the uh, the downturn in the economy during that that era, uh, the latter part of that time, uh, they did a contraction of their staff and I moved on and went to Planned Parenthood where I was the VP for both development and communications, uh, for a couple of years. And then I was old enough to retire. So I did. And in retirement, I, uh, started really ramping up my freelance writing. Now, as you know very well, at City Beat, I wrote a lot of like to-do picks every week. Yeah. And so here I am uh, now retired and writing for all kinds of outlets. I wrote that, that WCPO insider site that they had for a while. I wrote things for them. I continued writing for City Beat, of course. Um I wrote for uh, anyway. I wrote for a bunch of different places, and uh, and then I got an approach from a publisher in uh, St. Louis called Reedy Press, um, and they asked if I'd be interested in doing a book called "A Hundred Things to Do in Cincinnati Before You Die," and uh, you know, as I looked at, they sent me some samples of books like this that they'd published titles like this that they had published from uh, other cities. And they, uh, I could see that these were all like uh, 100, 150 words about, you know, various things. I thought, that's just like writing to-do picks for City Beat. So I said, sure, I'll take that on. So I did that. The first edition of that book came out in 2016 and then uh, sold well enough that they asked me to do a second edition, which came out late in 2019, uh, just ahead of the pandemic, which made it, you know, a bit of a challenge to sell it. I'm now sort of ramping up sales on that one again. But then uh, in 19, 
they approached in late 19, they approached me about doing another book, this one that I've this just come out called Oldest Cincinnati. Uh, and uh, that one, that was my pandemic writing project. So I got that one pushed out. It came out in April of this year. Now, let me rewind slightly also and tell you that while I was working at City Beat, I picked up a part-time editing gig with a publication called the Sondheim Review. It was a quarterly magazine about musical theater lyricist composer Stephen Sondheim. And uh, I... Uh, it had been around for about 10 years, but its editor retired, and in 2004, I was asked to be its managing editor. And so I took that on and continued to do that through my last couple of years at City Beat, during my time at the Opera, during my time at Planned Parenthood, and continued with it for a couple of years into retirement. Uh, but then it uh, it went out of business. Um, and... Uh, so, but I had this, it, it, it had existed for more than 20 years, 22 years in total. Um, and I got reasonably well known in the musical theater world about that. And then a publisher approached me about doing this book called the Stephen Sondheim Encyclopedia, a big reference book about Sondheim. So I, at first I thought they were asking me to bring together a bunch of writers to put it together. And, uh, and then they said, no, we really have in mind that you would be its author. So I said, okay, well, you know, you know, send me a contract and we'll talk about this. And uh, they, my contract, which I did ultimately sign, was for 300,000 words. Ooh. You know how many words that is. Yes. It's a lot of writing. It took me about two years to generate the material for it. And uh, I sent it off to the publisher in late 19. It was originally scheduled to come out in April of 20, but as we all know, the pandemic kind of, you know, stalled everything. In fact, the publisher furloughed most of its editorial team. So it kind of sat, the manuscript sat there and gathered dust for about eight months. And they cranked it up again last fall. And it was published in April of this year. It is a 650 page reference book about all aspects of Sondheim. It's got, uh, you know, summaries and uh, write-ups about his 18 musicals, uh, lots of entries about people who starred in shows and directed them and uh, so on. So that is out there now. Uh, it's a book that, you know, libraries will use as reference, but there's also a lot of uh, major musical theater, especially Sondheim fans who are interested in buying it. And it's uh, been selling pretty well thus far, as have my other books. So that's cool. that's how I ended up. I did not go out and pitch books to anybody. Huh. They just sort of uh, found you. came to me. Yeah, that, that's my dream, unusual. man. That, that's, yeah. that's my dream, but it always seems like a daunting task. So were you a Sondheim fan in particular, or was he like maybe in your top five, six? I'm trying to just gauge where. He was probably always my 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 favorite. So this is like um, me writing about the Beach Boys. Okay, right, I'm just trying to I'm right. trying to gauge where that would would be at because you know a lot of times you know, I listen to uh, these critique shows and of different artists and it's kind of surprising. Or some people be, it'll be like their favorite artist, and other times it'll be like oh they're five or six or seven down the row. So maybe there's a little distance from them. They can be a bit more, I guess, uh, yeah. objective about it. So did you have a did you have any kind of 
problems doing that, or were you able to keep a level head, even though this was this is like your guy? I think I kept a pretty level head, in part because I'd edited this magazine for uh, uh, about a dozen years, you know, you know, and I had lots of contributing writers, and I had to, you know, manage all of their contributions, their opinions, that sort of thing. So I could take a pretty balanced hand in uh, in writing all of this, and when I pulled together stuff for the encyclopedia, I uh, I was able, I think, to, uh, you know, not inject a lot of my own opinion because I could draw upon, you know, I could cite something that someone wrote and something that someone else wrote and just sort of offer perspectives uh, in, the, in that way. Cool. And so let's get to the uh, 100 things to do before you die, which I guess technically is 200 things to do before you die because well, you've the heard... second edition was an update of the first oh, edition. Okay. So it's about about a quarter of the material was new because some things had changed enough or okay. ceased to exist. I, I had, for instance, I had the duck tours uh, as an item in the first book and they don't exist here anymore. Awesome. And, uh, uh, and in the interval between the two editions, Fiona was born at the zoo. Okay. And how could, how could you write about the zoo and not mention Fiona? So, you know, I updated things, I put new material in. Uh, so it, it was uh, considerably refreshed over the book okay. three years earlier. That, well, there's a lesson to be learned there. Uh, if you're going to do these things, do them quickly because sometimes things yeah. don't exist anymore. As we know in the t-shirt business because, you know, ha- uh, most of this business is founded on things that actually don't exist anymore. Um, yeah. So I will with PF, I will tell you that when I uh, did the first edition of the book, I brainstormed things that I thought would be worth including, and I had a list of 200. So okay. I, I pared it down to what I thought were perhaps the 100 most essential things, and then uh, that, uh, uh, you know, and, and I used pulled from that, that list again when I uh, was able to uh, do this second edition. Aha. Uh-huh. And so I was going to ask if did you draw from your uh, any of your old city beat to dos or anything like that, or did you just brainstorm from scratch? Um, I can't say that because so much of those were you know fixed to specific events. But you know if it was something that happened on a repeated basis, I mean a lot of the things I about half the material in the hundred things book are what I call the usual suspects. Mm-hmm. You know. Uh, eat graters ice cream and uh, skyline Philly and things like that but you know because uh, and we would write about uh uh you know various kinds of music festivals or oh what the uh, the the riverfest fireworks you know i probably wrote something you know a to-do pick about those every year and so i could draw upon things like that okay so what would you recommend to folks just off the top of your head things that would be not you know, not the usual suspects, not your 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 skylines, your Cincinnati chilies. What what kind of things would yeah. you recommend? Well, I think that the one that I recommend that a lot of people tell me, you know, I've always meant to do that and I haven't done it, is the American Sign Museum. Oh yeah, it's great. They've been on the show. It's a it's a it is a, it is such a great place, and uh, you know, it's a little out of the way over there in Camp Washington. But uh, my gosh, you walk in there, and it's like it's like another world. So that's definitely one that I I would uh, point people to. Um, let me see here. I'm I'm perusing my table of contents. The book is divided into five sort of chapters. There's food and drink, music and entertainment, 
sports and recreation, culture and history, and uh, shopping and fashion. So uh, under shopping and fashion, for instance, I uh, talk about the Bat Six hot, uh, Hat Shop downtown. Oh, yeah. That's a landmark. And, uh, and I talk about, uh, uh, what else do I have here, about buying costumes at Capels. Uh, so, you know, some of those kinds of things. Of course, the, you know, the culture and history category is one that I uh, have a lot of familiarity with and, and affection for. Uh, but in that, I have the, uh, I've got an item about the Vent Haven, uh, you know, the Ventriloquist Museum that's yeah. over in northern yeah. Kentucky. Yep, they've been on uh, the show. I mean, that one is so out of the way that you have to, uh, you have to make an appointment to go there. Yep. Uh, yep. Uh, let's see, what else do I have here? Um Oh, the uh, 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 the Serpent Mound uh, out out to the east of the city is a really you know interesting sort of ancient historical kind of thing. Uh, and in fact, that one I also so this other book that I've done, the oldest Cincinnati, um, it has about ninety items in it, and it's not necessarily well. They are sort of things to do. They are things that you can still go and visit. Um, but they, uh, you know, go all the way back to early things like that and all the way up to more contemporary things like, well, like the Playhouse is our oldest professional theater. And, uh, you know, we've got uh, a lot of great old Art Deco buildings. Um, we have uh, the one of the oldest uh, uh, observatories uh, in the United States with the oldest telescope. Uh, in the United States there. So, uh, again, it's a, sort of a book that you could, uh, you know, put in your guest room. So when you've got people coming, you know, they can flip to a couple of pages in it and find something to do. It's funny you talk about uh, Serpent Mound. And uh, I didn't realize until I researched this even more is that uh, this whole area is just covered in, in ancient uh, Native American burial mounds. And Very I don't really know how many there, there were until we've had uh, mostly podcast guests have told us this. We've had a couple of people walk us through this. And uh, it's crazy the amount of uh, Indian remains here. In fact, right down the street from me where I am is another famous uh, – you're not allowed to visit it, but it's right up by where 32 meets Clough Pike for those who are familiar. The uh, museum center, I believe, owns this land. And it's a, it's a site where they um, are excavating, uh, I, I guess, a Hopewell culture and then a couple miles down the river in Marymount there's another one yeah yeah I lived in Marymount for a while when I first came to Cincinnati and uh, there was a lot of conversation about that out there but as you if you did a little bit of research about this you may know that that there was a, a, a mound uh, in the area a little bit north of where Fountain Square is now of course it's long been, oh, no. you know plotter and that sort yeah, of yeah. thing but uh, you know, even even in this location, probably in part because of the proximity to the the you know the the intersection with the Licking River. Yep. I mean, this was always sort of a a, a a junction where there was a lot of crossover and that sort of thing. So yeah, I, there's a, a lot of history around that. Yeah, I can't remember which guest told us, but they said that uh, yeah, because there were big feeder rivers, uh, they didn't have settlements on the actual Ohio River because that was too dangerous. It was safer to be up the Lifting River or up the Miami River where there were, there were still resources, but where you probably couldn't be found if somebody yeah. wanted to come after you and take your stuff. <laughs> yeah. So that was interesting. So oldest Cincinnati, so it's basically things that we have in town that are the oldest or among the oldest of their kind in the United States. Is that an accurate assessment? 
Yes, in many cases, <clears throat> excuse me, they are the oldest things just in greater Cincinnati, like okay. the oldest church or the oldest school or the you know, oldest library, that sort of thing. But in many cases, th there are things that do happen to be the oldest, uh, you know, well beyond Cincinnati. I mean, our art museum is the oldest art museum uh, west of the Allegheny Mountains. I think I knew that from our, our guest from the art museum. Uh, what else do we have that's uh, among the oldest? Well, all right, let me pull that book out here. <clears throat> I wish I had all this in, uh, on the you know tip of my tongue. But uh, let's see here. Uh, well, uh, the May Festival uh, is the oldest uh, choral festival in uh, the Western Hemisphere. Uh, it is the second oldest choral festival in the world. Oh, how about that? Uh, uh, the Cincinnati Opera is the second oldest opera company in the United States. Only the Metropolitan Opera is uh, is older. Oh, uh, and we have the oldest baseball the, team. Yep, oldest baseball team, absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know the uh, the building downtown, the Ingalls building that is at Fourth uh, and Vine Street that's just been turned into a Marriott courtyard. Yes, it, it, it is the oldest. Uh, concrete reinforced skyscraper. Uh, when it was built in 1903, um, there weren't skyscrapers anywhere because they didn't have the, the building uh, know-how to do that. And that many people were convinced that that building was going to collapse within a year. Wow. Um, it <laughs> apparently didn't happen. It's still standing. So it so. is, uh, you know, in some senses, the oldest skyscraper in the United States. Wow. I did not know that. Um, and, of course, our, our uh, the museum center isn't the oldest uh, train station, certainly, but it is the coolest. Uh, but is, is it like the old – is it one of the oldest Art Deco train stations or is it – uh, Yes, it would, it would be and it has certainly been preserved. You know, another one uh, the, in that category would be would be Cincinnati Music Hall. I mean it oh, is – Oh, that's right. It is – one of the oldest concert halls in the United States at the time it was built, it was one of the lar had the largest capacity of any concert hall, uh, and you know it's still it, it, even with the renovations and the they've reduced some of the seating capacity there, but it is still uh, a remarkable place um, and a wonderful example of uh, architecture from that era. That's cool. And so, any other book projects coming up for you? Or are you just trying to? Get the word out I'm, about the I'm the two most recent. Trying to get, get these books sold right now. <laughs> I I've been approached about a few other things, but haven't said yes to anything. I I am supposedly retired and would like some time to you know well travel and get away and not go. have uh, deadlines looming over me. I I do still write about theater for City Beats, but uh, of course haven't had much of that to write about uh, for the last year and a half. I'm looking forward to things getting started up again this fall uh, and. We'll be doing some writing for them around that. Oh, great. Well, that's good. It's good that they were able to stay in business. The one paper I write for in Minneapolis actually went out of business. And yeah. uh, they were well, I, you know, I City Beat sort of limped along through through this. They could really only publish when they could generate enough ad revenue through yeah. a Burger Week or a Pizza Week or something yeah. like that. But they are now, uh, as of the, uh, I believe, the end of the month, on the 30th, uh, Going forward from there, they'll be they'll be printing an issue every two weeks. Okay, I got to get back in touch because uh, I 
comedians will be touring again, so I'll be interviewing them, which is actually how I got this gig uh, okay. in the in the grand scheme grand scheme of things. But um, yeah, it's funny too that then Breen and I had this discussion. Is that when I remember when the paper first went online, it was really kind of clunky and difficult to read and things like that. But now, way more people resource it online than I think pick it up at their local bar, uh, pandemic or otherwise. Well, and especially, uh, you know, even with them going to every two weeks, it means, you know, like if I review a show that opens the day the paper comes out and we can't get a print review in for two weeks, most of the theaters don't run productions for much more than three weeks. So the ability to put reviews up online in a timely manner makes all the difference. So, yeah, it's great to have those you know, sort of complement one another. And I think that the, the paper and its current staff have done a great job with that. Because it, it did, I did over the period of the pandemic, I probably wrote mm, half a dozen or more articles, sort of, a you know, virtual stuff that the theaters were offering and things in that vein. So, you know, they were still there as a service for people who would take the time to look at the website. Yeah, I tried to uh, dial back all the stuff I was doing. So I don't know if you remember from the past. I'm famous for having like eight or nine different jobs, uh, yes. most of them involving. Yeah. And I just dialed them back to this. And uh, I do uh, social media work for a local restaurant chain. And that is all. And I still don't seem to be any less busy, though, because now those just both take up the rest of that time. So I don't know what I did wrong. I'll tell you, this is an interesting thing since you're doing social media. Yes. You know, during my era of working uh, really sort of straight on in PR was the 90s when I was with the PR firm. And, you know, then we wrote news releases and faxed them out to people and, you know, maybe followed up with a phone call. But so here I here I come, you know, 20 years later trying to promote this Sondheim book. And how the heck do you do that? Well, I worked with a publicist who put me in touch with podcasters and bloggers and some public radio producers. And I probably did, oh, at least two dozen interviews that got distributed nationwide. So, you know, anybody who was following any of that sort of thing had plenty of opportunity to hear about the Stephen Sondheim Encyclopedia. And that's all thanks to the world of social media, which when I was working in PR didn't even really exist. It's, it's strange. My wife and I are having that conversation uh, the other day is that our most of what we do professionally didn't exist, uh, you know, the year we got married, which would have been 1992. Uh, like yeah. at all, like what she does for, uh, she works for a, a large packaged goods concern here in the city. And uh, okay. most of what she does is tied to, uh, I've heard of them. <laughs> yes, it's tied to social media and to things like that. And, uh, and of course what I do for, for the shirts actually doesn't really yep. involve t-shirts much. At you are cutting involved. out on me. Oh, I was gonna say what, what mostly I do in for, for Cincy shirts involves, uh, blogging and doesn't really involve t-shirts at all. The actual making of yeah. my mom yeah. thinks I make t-shirts. I have to explain her every time. No, I, I'm not making the T-shirts, Mom. I'm just <laughs> – I'm trying to get people to buy them. Uh, so, uh, well – Hey, P.F., I'm only hearing about a quarter of what you're saying um, for the last minute or so. You've okay. been cutting out on me. Okay. I was just saying go, – going over that uh, what I mostly do for Cincy Shirts and doesn't involve uh, selling shirts really. Uh, it involves blogging and doing this podcast and all kinds of other stuff. My mom thinks I make T-shirts and I have to explain to her every time. I don't make the T-shirts, Mom. I just try to get people to buy them. Uh, I don't think she quite understands that. Um, but uh, this has been a great chat. Uh, I, 
I learned a lot that uh, I didn't know before, although I, I, I guess I did know more than I remembered <laughs> in our chats over the years at City Beat and so forth. Well, you know, sometimes we only know one aspect of someone when we work with them in a limited fashion, but we all have uh, interestingly complex lives, I think. So that, it's true. been great to have a chance to talk to you. Yeah, for sure. And uh, and great to, you know, hear all of your in and in, out involvements with uh, Cincinnati. And uh, I didn't really realize uh, I didn't realize about the books until Catherine Witt is actually the one that pointed us in the right direction. Because she was like, oh, yeah. there's another guy. There's this guy I know. His name is Rick Pender. And I'm like, I know that guy. And I yeah. I heard you briefly talking about Old Cincinnati on, I think, on McConnell show on LW. And that's when I had the notion yeah. to, to get you on the show. Uh, well, great. Well, we, I'm yes. grateful for the opportunity. And uh, so when when we'll, does this go up on, on Cincy Shirts' website then? Yeah. A, a week from tomorrow, this will go up. Uh, tomorrow's episode is Voice of America Museum. And then you'll be on the following okay. week. And, uh, yeah, you can get it, tell folks you get it wherever you get your podcast, be that right off of our website, Cincy Shirts, it's in our blog section, or you can go to Apple Podcast or Spotify or uh, Google Play, where just any, anywhere you get your pods, is what okay. we like to say, you can find that there. And uh, the last order of business we have is uh, we let the guests choose the coupon code that our customers can use for the upcoming week to take 20% off their entire CincyShirts.com or OldSchoolShirts.com order. Oh, and speaking of, I have one last question for you. We were talking about baseball, and then we got away from it. Uh, we're about a week out from the our baseball team renaming themselves, not our Cincinnati baseball team, folks, me and Rick's baseball team, the Indians. Yeah. What do you reckon, Guardians? Yeah. Are you liking it? I, I'm okay with it. Same. <laughs> I, you know, I heard some of the things that I that were under consideration that I thought, oh, please don't use yeah. those. Yeah, yeah. I was, I, I had not heard that this was, that you know, one of the contenders, but uh, I, I kind of like it. It's growing on me uh, because of the yeah. Guardians of Traffic thing. The thing with the the name, my thought has always been over the years that I don't think it was a particularly offensive name. It was a kind of a dumb and inaccurate name because yeah. you know. Uh, and of course the Chief Wahoo, that dude needed to go. <laughs> Absolutely. Right. But yeah, I think yeah. I, I can live with Guardians. Um, yeah. so anyway, I was going to tell you that if, uh, if you have a notion, uh, in fact, I'll, I will send you a coupon code for being such a wonderful guest and you can use, you can either use it at Cincy shirts or you can use it at old school shirts. And, uh, I will have you go through and let me know which one you want to use it on. But we have a whole big Cleveland store on old school shirts. So oh. and that might be of interest to you. And towards that end, you get to pick the coupon code for folks to use on either site for the next week. It can be a, a small phrase, uh, you know, a couple of words or just one word if you like. So what, what would you like the coupon code to be? Uh, how about oldest Cincinnati? Perfect. All right. Oldest Cincinnati. That's easy enough, folks. So you can use okay. that online or in our physical stores over the Rhine and Hyde Park. And, uh, I'll shoot you an email, uh, Rick, with the details of how you can, uh, collect your, uh, prize today for being, uh, a guest on this Nancy Shirts podcast. And, okay. um, yeah. Oh, and for folks who want to buy your book, I reckon everywhere you get books, Amazon and whatnot. Yes, uh, but let me mention this. Um, I do have my own website, uh -huh. and uh, you can order the Cincinnati books from Reedy Press with links on that site, and they they ship without charging for shipping. Oh, so you know, that makes it easy. And my Sondheim book, which I think is a wonderful book, but it is expensive. It's a hundred and thirty-five dollar book. But on my uh, there is a there is a coupon code on my website that gets you a thirty percent discount. So it nice. knocks it down to under a hundred dollars. Oh, that's cool. Uh, the, my website is Rick Pender Writes 
rickpenderwrites.com. All one word, rickpenderwrites.com. Perfect. A must-have for Sondheim fans, I'm sure. Um, yes. All right, cool. Well, great. Well, okay. again, appreciate you taking the time, Rick, uh, and we'll uh, hopefully I'll see you in person sometime soon. Likewise, Pia. Right. I really appreciate the opportunity. Great. Great having you. Thanks, man. Thanks. Right. Bye now. Bye-bye. Immigrant go to America. Many hellos in America. Nobody knows in America. Puerto Rico in America. Rick Pender. Turns out the only Sondheim I know is West Side Story, uh, so there you have that. And uh, I know he wrote Sweeney Todd, too, but uh, this track you're listening to is from the former. It really has that uh, 60s vibe, though. That's what I've always kind of liked about that. It really puts you in the mind of the 1960s, uh, apart from, you know, pop music of the era. Uh, West Side Story also gives you that vibe, of course. And in any case, find Rick's books at rickpenderwrites.com or wherever you get your books. Now, if there's someone you'd like us to have on the show, simply email us podcast at cincyshirts.com and put podcast guest in the subject line and give us a few sentences about why you'd like us to have that person on the show. Or if you want us to have someone back on the show to talk about something we missed, like I just remembered Rick is a big Star Trek fan and we didn't talk about that. And of course, I love Star Trek, so we could have chatted about that. Most of the folks around these parts at Cincy Shirts are all Star Wars fans. Hmm. So anyway, be sure to tell friends and loved ones about the show, including folks who may no longer live in the area, but still feel connected to this tri-state. Check out the Cincy Shirt podcast archives, as always. Today's show is produced by me, with help from Josh and Darren. Our theme music is Cincinnati by Big Nothing, who are from Philadelphia. Find their music on iTunes, or I guess now it's Apple Music, excuse me, Spotify, or wherever else you get your music. And find Midget Tees from great places like Philadelphia, Phoenix, Boston, Pittsburgh, Cleveland, Louisville, Seattle, and a ton more at OldSchoolShirts.com. Defunct sports teams, old stores, old restaurants, old malls, like Cincy Shirts, but for those towns. And again, the promo code for this episode is Oldest Cincinnati, all one word, of course, all lowercase, all uppercase, mix and match as you like. That part does not matter, but you. what does matter is you will use that to take 20% off your entire CincyShirts.com or OldSchoolShirts.com order, or come into the stores near over the Rhine or Hyde Park and say, I'd like to use the promo code Oldest Cincinnati, and they'll give you 20% off your entire order. Follow our social channels, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Snapchat for the latest Cincy Shirts news. Tell your friends about the show. Give us a good review wherever you get the podcast from. And as always, download or stream us next time. Bye.